This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. It was a jam-packed day at the Wisconsin Legislature as lawmakers convened to take up a number of high-profile bills. Here's what you may have missed. The Assembly approved a ban on teaching principles informed by critical race theory in Wisconsin schools. That Republican author measure now heads to the state Senate for deliberation. The bill faces a near-certain veto from Governor Tony Evers. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, lawmakers passed a bill that would bring felony charges against health care providers who let a child that survives an abortion die. According to the Associated Press, violators of the so-called Born Alive bill could face life in prison. That bill now goes to the Assembly for a vote and then Governor Tony Evers, who will likely veto it. And finally, both chambers approved a resolution that seeks to preserve Wisconsin's current legislative districts as much as possible in the redistricting process. Wisconsin's current map was drawn by Republicans in 2011, and it heavily favors that party. Speaking with reporters today, Evers said that it's unlikely he'd approve any maps based on current district lines. Turning our attention away from the state capitol for a moment, the Wausau School District is attracting scrutiny from Indigenous leaders after a Wausau West High School teacher dressed in clothing that is stereotypical of Native Americans during a class lesson. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that the district issued a public apology on Friday in which it said district officials would conduct a, quote, thorough review of our curriculum, unquote. Humpty Dumpty went to the art fair on the square, but a theft has left his owner in deep despair. Now the Madison police are looking for leads to make thieves pay for their dastardly deeds. The unique statue, which depicts Humpty Dumpty on the toilet, was stolen from art fair on the square on Saturday. Madison police are currently investigating the theft, and anyone with information is asked to call the Madison Area Crime Stoppers. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the unique sculpture is valued at $1,400. Madison is once again moving to use a vacant store near Easttown Mall to use as a men's homeless shelter. This time, though, the action is considered temporary. Last night, the Madison Finance Committee voted to spend about $3 million to purchase the building and set it up for homeless services. In May, proponents of this policy were not able to muster the necessary support to approve buying the same property for the same purpose. The proposal to purchase the property on Zaya Road fell short by one vote. Back then, alders who voted against the measure cited concerns from nearby businesses. They also took issue with the potential shelter's distance from downtown and difficulties with transportation to and from the shelter. Wisconsin could see the COVID-19 death toll reach 8,000 by the end of this week. The state reported 32 new deaths today, putting a total of 7,962 COVID-related deaths during the pandemic. The State Department of Health Services reports that the seven-day average of reported cases stands at 2,526 cases a day. And now on to today's top stories. The World Dairy Expo has returned to the Alliant Energy Center. Attracting attendees from around the world, the event went on hiatus last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The expo kicked off this morning with an address from Governor Tony Evers, who used the opportunity to announce new legislation to assist Wisconsin farmers. WORT reporter Carolina Bursian has the story. Speaking at the World Dairy Expo this morning, 
Governor Tony Evers emphasized the importance of agriculture to Wisconsin's economy. Wisconsin's dairy industry is truly instrumental to our state's and national agricultural industry. An industry that remains a critical driver of our state's economy and our workforce contributing almost $105 billion to the state's economy and providing over 435,000 jobs. Overlooking a pavilion of dairy cows, Evers announced a package of bills aimed to bolster the state's agricultural industry. That comes after years of difficulty for small dairy farms. According to numbers from the state's Department of Agriculture, Wisconsin lost more than 800 dairy farms in 2019, or roughly 10% of the state's dairy farms. We're proposing a robust package now of legislation to invest over $25 million towards bolstering our aid economy, workforce, promoting and building local markets for Wisconsin egg products, and connecting the dots with our farmers and local communities to help tackle food insecurity and hunger at the same time. Included in the package is funding to connect food aid charities with producers, provide financial support to students studying meat processing, and additional funding for marketing a business program that highlights Wisconsin-made products. It would fund farm-to-school programs to get more locally grown food to schools, businesses, hospitals, and higher education facilities. It also creates a program to help increase farmer access to mental health support services. The new Regional Farmer Mental Health Program is aimed at increasing access to mental health support services for farmers. Joining the governor today was State Senator Brad Paff, Representative Dave Considine, and Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, or DATCAP, Secretary Randy Romanski. In 2019, PAF attended the last World Dairy Expo, secretary-designee of DATCAP. In the intervening two years, he was essentially fired by the state legislature after urging immediate mental health support for farmers. PAF's termination was an unprecedented move by the GOP. Now he's back as a state senator, representing large portions of the dairy-producing Driftless region. Today, he signaled his support for the package. We can't just think of agriculture as a farmer's business. We need to think of agriculture as everybody's business. State Representative Dave Considine focused on the Regional Farmer Mental Health Program. They're going to reach out to somebody that they know, to somebody that's in their community. And it's that part that this bill addresses. It brings and gives people from DACAP time to get out to the local communities, regionally around our state. <coughs> introduce themselves to farmers and offer them help. It is vital that farmers have that help in their local community. Romanski says the package could strengthen ties between farmers and their local communities. One of the things we saw during the pandemic is that people wanted to have that closer connection to their food. Know your farmer, know your food, know where it comes from. Because in Wisconsin, that could be just down, just down the road a little ways. Governor Evers was hopeful that the package would gain bipartisan support. It'll be circulated and hopefully we'll get some, we'll get some bipartisan support. There was bipartisan support for additional money in the, uh, during the discussions during the, the budget. However, uh, leadership cut that off and uh, we're just hopeful that this is a time where people feel strongly about it. Uh, we're, we're bouncing back as a state and this, this helps us do it. The bills were first proposed by Governor Evers in his latest budget. Nick Lewandowski is the Government Relations Director of the Wisconsin Farmers Union, an organization that supports family farmers. 
certainly uh, Wisconsin Farmers Union is supportive of these efforts and uh, we want to see them move forward. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, they, they didn't make it into the state budget. Uh, the Joint Finance Committee uh, cut a lot of the, these programs significantly. So this is just one other way uh, for the governor to be able to move uh, they, these positive and progressive uh, legislative items forward through the legislative process. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Carolina Bursian. Last night, the Madison Board of Education unanimously approved a vaccine mandate for all MMSD staff. WORT reporter Nate Buggyhout has the details. Last night, the Madison School Board met to unanimously approve a vaccine mandate for all MMSD staff members. All staff members must be fully vaccinated by November 1st. The mandate's approval comes a full month into the school year. The plan won't be implemented until about halfway through the semester. That leaves months of in-person learning during which students could be exposed to unvaccinated staff members. MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamans says that the surging Delta coronavirus variant motivated the timing of the board's decision. COVID cases began spiking across the state towards the end of the summer after new cases had been on the decline for months. Well, because the uh, Delta variant and COVID-19 doesn't uh, follow our, our school schedule. Um, uh, we had a, uh, a spike of Delta variant here locally and across the country, and school districts have been monitoring that. So far, there have been 162 positive cases of COVID-19 among MMSD staff and students this school year. The mandate does allow for some medical or religious exemptions. The paperwork for those exemptions will also be due on November 1st. Those who do get an approved exemption will have to take twice-weekly COVID tests. Staff members who do not get vaccinated or turn in exemption paperwork will be placed on administrative leave without pay. Staff that are unvaccinated and unexempted by December 20th will then be terminated. MMSD will be holding a vaccination clinic for all unvaccinated employees on October 1st to provide the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine and another clinic on October 22nd to provide the second dose. The mandate is seen as phase one by MMSD with a second phase to the plan to vaccinate other groups in the future. Lamont says that this will include visitors and volunteers to the school. Um, that next phase, uh, which has already begun, is our planning around how to... Uh, work with visitors who are coming into our school buildings uh, and volunteers, partners like that. MMSD staff who are still hesitant about the COVID vaccine are encouraged to join a Q&A session being held both today and tomorrow to ask any questions they might have about the vaccine to health experts. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehout. Today, the state Senate considered bills covering everything from redistricting to animal abuse. But before taking up those measures, the Republican-controlled chamber confirmed nearly 40 of Governor Tony Evers' political appointees. For more, we turn to WORT producer Jonah Chester. 39 political appointees were approved by the Senate today. Four are secretaries in Governor Tony Evers' cabinet. And with today's confirmation vote, they can drop the second half of the unwieldy title secretary designee. That includes Missy Hughes of the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, Craig Thompson of the Department of Transportation, Don Krim of the Department of Safety and Professional Services, and Randy Romanski of the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. Some of Evers' appointees have been waiting years for formal confirmation from the Senate. 
Legislative confirmation of the governor's appointees has historically been procedural. But since Evers took office, the process has morphed into a partisan battle between a Democratic governor and a GOP legislature. Unconfirmed appointees are vulnerable to removal by the state legislature at any time. Notably, former DATCAP secretary-designee Brad Paff was rejected by the legislature in 2019 after making pointed remarks about the need for the legislature to fund farmer mental health initiatives. It was the first time the legislature had effectively fired a gubernatorial appointee since at least 1987, according to state records found by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. After the unusual move of watching the proceedings on the legislative floor on his birthday, Evers characterized the move as having a chilling effect on appointees yet to be confirmed by the legislature. I want them to be I want to be them to be forthcoming. I want them to be professional. That's why we hired them. They're the, they're the best people for the job and to think that they're going to have to keep their mouth shut uh, for the next who knows, 4 years in order to get approved by this Senate. That is just absolute bull. Speaking with the reporters at the World Dairy Expo today, Evers said that he was glad the Senate was finally taking action. About time. About time. Uh, I know they've been real busy, but uh, we have some extraordinary leaders uh, waiting to be uh, waiting to be approved. Nearly all 39 appointees won unanimous approval, with the exception of Don Krim, now Secretary of the Department of Safety and Professional Services, as well as Craig Thompson, now Secretary of the Department of Transportation. Notably absent from today's docket was Sandra D. Noss, Evers' appointee to chair the state's Natural Resources Board. The Resources Board serves as the governing body for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. That role is currently occupied by Frederick Prane, a Scott Walker appointee whose term expired in May. Prane has repeatedly refused to step down from the board, citing a 1964 Wisconsin Supreme Court decision that allows a board member to continue to serve until their replacement is confirmed. Democratic Attorney General Josh Call sued to get Prane off the board last month, but that case was dismissed. The Associated Press reports that Call is appealing that decision. Also absent from today's confirmation list was Karen Timberlake, who's currently heading the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, which is tasked with overseeing the state's COVID-19 response. She's held that role since her predecessor, Andrea Palm, left the DHS in January to serve as the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Palm was also never confirmed by the state Senate. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check in back with news director Shelly Pittman, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. Thanks so much, Sarah. And I do have only 30 seconds. We're so jam-packed with news that we barely have time to ask for your support to WORT. What does the local news get you when you tune in every Monday through Thursday? Well, reports from out in the field, the World Dairy Expo, uh, political machinations in the state legislature, school vaccinations, and even rhyming poems about stolen local art. If you love that, support WORT, WORTFM.org, or call 608-256-2001. Thanks so much. Last year, 68 Wisconsinites lost their lives due to domestic violence. That's according to a report issued last week by the advocacy group End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin. For more about that report's findings, WORT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Monica Minkins, the executive director of End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin. 
just briefly, can you outline the report's major findings? This is a this is a very exhaustive, thorough report. It's dozens and dozens of pages. But what are the major findings from this report that you'd like to float to the surface off the top here? A couple of the major ones. You know that there were 68 deaths. The um, individuals um, involved in the homicides or it were from ages 3 to 73. And so it went across the lifespan. And looking at the fact that it was in 17 different, 17 different counties reported um, domestic violence homicides, it lets you know that domestic violence doesn't discriminate and, and it, can, it can harm anyone. It can touch anyone. I also think that, you know, something that we noticed was that quite a few of the cases had involvement at some point with the criminal justice system, and yet people still died. And so that tells us that while the criminal justice system plays a role in our society, there are other ways, to other roads to homicide prevention aside from the police that need to be explored so that we are taking a holistic approach to domestic violence and, and ending it. What are some of those alternative alternative routes? I think that, you know, looking at, and this isn't necessarily a defund the police, and yet some of those funds could go into the communities. It, it could go into looking at safe, affordable housing or a livable wage and economic justice are important. Health care for everyone, so that health care isn't an issue. All of those pieces that get in the way of people liberating themselves and, and moving in ways that are more safe for them, I think would be really helpful. And, you know, I think about the criminal justice system, the police. The police are a reaction to a situation. And what if instead of reacting, we were more proactive? What if we went to the root of the situation, looked at historical trauma, looked at, at childhood trauma, looked at, looked at all of those pieces, and then move forward? I think we would have better results. What would you like to see the state legislature do or the federal government do while we're on the subject of, of solutions to help address this issue? You know, I think that, you know, once again, th- there is definitely a, a need for more money in the field for, for programs in the, in the movement. And the, the funding that we have has certain restrictions. And if you think about serving everyone, like when I think about VAWA and any legislation that has come down, it was always designed with white cisgendered um, women, heterosexual women in mind. And if we look at the fact that domestic violence touches everyone, there is a need to loosen up those restrictions and those guidelines so that we're able to think more creatively to serve everyone who has a lot of barriers. And so I would say to legislators, one, send us more money to um, loosen up those restrictions or those guidelines so that we are able to serve more people. And I think a great one is in thinking about economic justice and housing first. Someone comes to you with in a domestic violence situation, 
And yet we know that there are a couple of things that we can do that will keep them safer. One could be get their car fixed so that they can get back and forth to work and not rely on the car that the partner has. Another could be just the fact that they can get to work and have their own income could be something that would make them safer. And so if we could do, if we could help provide and, and keep that continuity of life going so that it's not interrupted and they don't have, they no longer have that resource. And we know that that resource will keep them moving and keep them liberated. Then that would be a great alternative to carceral intervention and and, and carceral responses. And so it's about looking at the more creative ways to serve because Everyone that a lot of times people that come to programs with domestic violence is domestic violence and then some. This report is the latest in a series of annual domestic violence homicide reports that end uh, end domestic abuse Wisconsin puts out each year. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. 2020 was uh, was different because of the pandemic. So yeah. can we draw any conclusions about the pandemic's impact on domestic violence homicide comparing the 2019 report data to the 2020 report data? You know, it's hard to establish a trend from one year to the next. And yet, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic did play a role. Thinking about the safe at home, right? And everyone was not safe at home. Not only were they not safe at home, to enter into someone else's home could put people in danger. And so people stayed home and they stayed home in dangerous situations. And so I think that there is value in being able to leave your house and get away for the night and those things were taken away. And so there was, there was an influence on the, from the pandemic. I think also the pandemic laid bare all of our societal problems and it was about access and what resources people had. And it showed that black and brown and indigenous uh, women, trans women of color did not have access to all to a lot of resources, which also then meant that they needed to stay in situations that were not very safe for them. And so the pandemic definitely played a role. I think it opened our eyes and it opened our eyes in a way that could lead us to act, that should prompt us to act. And yet there there were it, it was compounded. Domestic violence was compounded by the by the pandemic. Monique, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Monique Minkins is the executive director of End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORG. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call provides the latest news from UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly checks in on the fall bird migration. And Radio Astronomy explores the furthest reaches of the Milky Way galaxy. But I will check in with Shally once more, then we'll hear some of the news around the world back in a flash. 
And that is a presumptive thank you for donating to WORT and this news show in particular. Uh, We enjoyed a great first half of local news and state news uh, and reporting from out in the scene, but we out in the field, but we need tools to make that happen. I have a computer in front of me that is not entirely functional, so I've actually been following along the script on my phone. And the same is true for volunteers. We need your support to give us the tools to make the local news happen. Pledge online at wortfm.org or call 608-256-2001. I've got Dave in my ear. Dave, uh, Super Dave, volunteering his time here along with all of our volunteers, reporters, and hosts and feature producers. It takes so many people to make this happen. We are truly a community, but we need your support. We have big items that we need to fund. Things like soundboards, $80,000 worth of two soundboards. We have professional development for hosts and reporters. All sorts of things. We need your support. 608-256-2001 online at wortfm.org. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to get the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, contributor Hope Carnop examines some new construction projects on campus and how they're disrupting students' commutes. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. It's about 2.20 p.m. on University Avenue. Students are trekking through the center of campus to get to their next lecture or discussion section. The UW-Madison Police Department recently announced they would post officers on Charter and Mills, some of the busiest intersections. They cited concerns that students were dangerously and illegally crossing the road. But some students say they need to rush to get to class, often only having 15 or 20 minutes to get from one side of campus to another. The story evolved on Twitter last week, starting conversations about how the campus layout impacts students' ability to get to class, especially during construction and detours. ASM, the student government body, quote, tweeted UWPD's announcement, saying, quote, if you want students to walk safely, give them a safe place to walk when construction happens. Don't find us on our way to class. We need that money to afford rent, eat, and meet our basic needs as humans. Campus news writer Hannah Ritvo is here to share her story on this issue. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. So can you just describe what University Avenue has looked like the past couple times you've walked on it and taking pictures around that area? Yeah, so there's a ton of construction on one of the sidewalks, and then it goes into the street also, so and also into the bike lane a little bit. And then there's been a cop that's been standing right outside the construction so that people can't walk through the other area. But, like, for the last week or two, students have just been, like, hundreds of students have been walking through the street. So, obviously, it is a problem here, but 
like the whole sidewalk is pretty like you can't walk on it at all so it's like pretty it's like pretty heavy construction going on over there so I can understand why students are annoyed. Mm -hmm. So UWPD made the decision to post some officers around that area during heavy periods of passing time between classes. What were some of the reasons that they gave to have this new policy in place? Um, There's been a lot of calls to the UWPD about people almost hitting students who are trying to jaywalk. There's also been a lot of complaints about um, like light changes and stuff. People have just been walking even though it's not okay to walk, even when they are walking legally. So they decided it was time to put someone there. They just don't want students to get hurt. Mm-hmm. So students and faculty reacted pretty quickly on Twitter to UWP's announcement. Can you just describe what some of that sentiment was like on that platform? Yeah, so sentiment was pretty negative towards the UWPD. I don't think I saw any positive comments about the decision to place a police officer out there. Um, Everyone was either joking about how they're going to, like, not listen to it or people were, like, really upset. A lot of ASM representatives and just students at UW-Madison commented on the post and talked about their concerns. A lot of people were concerned about increased police presence just in general. So, yeah, it was overall very negative, though. Mm Mm-hmm. It seemed like some of the comments were focused on what other alternatives could exist to immediately going to a warning or a fine. I know like some freshmen who are, you know, going into this area for the first time might not know the different sidewalks and the different kind of social norms around crossing the streets. What did you kind of see were some of the comments that were suggesting other alternatives? Um, A lot of people were overall just really upset about, like, lack of public walking infrastructure. So there was a lot of comments suggesting, like, even, like, bridges or just more sidewalks for students to get to class because this, in Madison, like, a lot of students don't have cars. It's obviously we all walk to class. So I think there was a lot of um, talk about, like, making better infrastructure here. And I think there was also some conversation about don't put a police officer out there immediately first address the student body, like maybe through an email or something. Like it was weird that the first step in this encounter or like in this situation was just putting a police officer out on the road instead of like, like they could have worked to put crossing guards or something to like ensure that students could safely cross with a crossing guard like they do at most schools. It's kind of weird they chose to put a police officer there. Yeah, and I mean, there's other construction going on on campus, too. I know East Campus Mall is a big one that's under construction right now, and that's usually somewhere where students would be crossing between classes. How do you think students are feeling about just the general nature of construction on campus? And, you know, what is it like to get from one class to another in the span of 10 or 15 minutes? Uh, Students and teachers alike are pretty upset about how much construction is going on. There's been a ton of construction going on everywhere last year and this year. I'm not sure about the years before that. But um, overall, students and teachers, like students just rush to class and like there is a lot of construction going on. So it's hard for them to make it in time. And this construction, maybe they could not start at the beginning of the school year or like do it over summer or something. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your story. In other campus news, 2020 grads recently returned to campus for a ceremony at Camp Randall after festivities were held virtually last year due to COVID. 
The ceremony featured student speaker CJ Zabat and shooting guard Pat Connaughton of the NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. Graduates also celebrated the Camp Randall tradition of jumping around. As part of the weekend, grads were treated to a Young Gravy concert at the Sylvie, a night at the terrace, and brunch at Alumni Park. Planning started in winter to ensure graduates still had a celebration in person. Last year's graduating seniors said it meant a lot to gather together even a year later. Memorial Union and Union South are facing staffing shortages. CART, a sandwich and salad spot popular during lunchtime, closed for a few days due to a lack of staff. The union says they are working to hire 600 additional staff and bring the team up to pre-pandemic levels. One former staff member said the lack of workers may be due to the lingering impacts of COVID-19 and management issues. University plans to construct a building for the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences. The $225 million building will be funded entirely through private donations. UW has already received $175 million for the project from the Mortgage Family and the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. It will include majors in computer science, statistics, and information science. Interest in computer science has increased tenfold over the last decade. Public research funders include NASA and the National Institutes for Health, along with private funders like Facebook and Google. Chancellor Rebecca Blank said it is, quote, an investment that is central to the future of the university. Madison has been a growing city for technology jobs. The 300,000-square-foot building will be located across the street from a Discovery Building on Orchard Street. Construction is expected to begin in 2023 and wrap up by 2024. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Sholly, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. Thanks, Christian. Hey, I really need your support to support the news during our pledge drive. My presumptive uh, ringing the bell did not work, so I need you to make those phones ring or see a new donation pop up on our web pledge report in front of me. Uh, Last break, I talked about the need to pay for big items like soundboards or uh, professional development. We also have uh, uh, smaller items that we need to pay for, uh, idea-focused ones like open records requests. Uh, The other day, just this week, 
week, I paid about 20 bucks to a local governmental entity to fulfill an open records request. And if you pledge $20, I will consider you as a sponsor of that story. It's going to take a couple uh, a couple days to get out there, but uh, it's a good one, I promise you. So pledge $20 to WORT's news team, and you will fund the quality journalism that we have here. And we submit a lot of open records requests here on the news. And also for your pledge of $25 or more, we have the new WORT bumper sticker. Um, it's uh, in neon. It's kind of like the electric company logo. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we it's yours for a pledge of $25 or more. Pledge online at WORTFM.org. I'd love to see an online pledger, our last online pledger pledge during Democracy Now! And that person, Anonymous from Madison, is a new donor to WORT. Thank you, Anonymous from Madison, uh, who picked up a long long sleeved t-shirt um and who likes tropical rhythms i like it like that and a public affair on friday which means sd denure you can also call us 608-256-2001 and make a pledge of any amount 25 dollars. sponsor a story pick up a wort bumper sticker it seems like a good deal to me Our goal for this hour is $250. We need you to be the first caller during the WORT news. Uh, Or to my knowledge, the first caller. I I don't know, but uh, I haven't gotten anything. So 608-256-2001. Online at wortfm.org. Support the news. Thanks. Fall is migration season for Wisconsin's flying feathered friends. So this week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares how the Dane County Humane Society is handling birds that are getting injured on their annual trip south. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today we're going to provide a really quick program update because we have had just such a fantastic fall month of September with lots of birds in and out of our facility because of the migratory period and just a really cool array of animals that are in our care right now. So what are a few of our animals that we have released? Over the last couple of weeks, we've released certain species such as gray catbirds. That is a species that is kind of a a very interesting bird that's uh, similar to robins. They eat a lot of fruit. And if you've ever seen them, they're all dark gray with a nice black cap, uh, kind of a reddish eye color. And their undertail coverts, which are the fluffy feathers underneath the tail, are a really dark maroon. They kind of have a black cap uh, and you definitely see them in the migratory periods and throughout the summer because they do definitely breed in our area. Probably one of my favorite birds because they sound just like a cat. So yes, you can meow back to cat birds and they'll probably kind of come inspect who you are if you see them in your yard or along roadsides. Uh, They're kind of scrub brush breeders, but definitely a a favorite here at the Wildlife Center. We also have released a number of uh, warbler species 
So Canada Warbler, which is probably um, one of the more beautiful ones in my opinion, has a beautiful black speckled necklace, um, yellow belly, kind of bluish coloration to the, the wings. Just it looks very similar to a Magnolia Warbler if you've ever seen one of those. It looks almost the same except the streaking on a Magnolia Warbler is black spots along the yellow flanks instead of a necklace. But being able to band a Canada Warbler and release it from rehabilitation, just absolutely amazing. We also have released a number of ruby-throated hummingbirds. Uh, we get a lot of them in the fall migration or especially a number of juveniles that come into care in the fall season right after the nesting period. Um, sometimes when they're young, they don't find enough food uh, prior to migration or most commonly it's that they hit windows because a lot of feeders are are within the certain distance from the windows that actually causes problems with them seeing their reflection and then uh, not just their own reflection for territorial reasons but also the reflection of vegetation that surrounds the area and they think they can fly to that vegetation reflected in the windows. So we've definitely released a few of those. Uh, we've had our woodpeckers start to come through. So downy woodpecker um, and kind of in that species category, red-breasted nuthatch has been banded and released. Uh, again, a lot of window collisions, both of those two birds in particular. Um, and the thrushes are all coming through. So uh, we tend to see a lot of Swainson's thrush in the fall. I know I've done some segments about thrushes and all the different species we have here. Uh, but this year, 2021, we seem to have seen a lot of gray-cheeked thrush, which is one we don't see as often, but it's very nice to, to get them in care and see the, the difference between the two. Um, Swainson's thrush has a nice buffy eye ring, uh, and the gray-cheeked thrush is very, very pale. Um, but otherwise, they kind of look like robins. They're just brown and spotted. So very beautiful birds, uh, very pretty sound if you ever see them in the wild. And then, of course, robins. We've released a lot of robins and um, house finches, probably our most common species of songbirds, morning doves. Uh, and then if we're looking at raptors, we have released a Cooper's hawk here. Um, just that was at the tail end of August. And then also an osprey released at the tail end of August into September. Um, so, you know, we haven't seen as many raptor species, it seems like this year, maybe in comparison to other years. It's actually been a little light in our raptor room, but um, we still have over 95 patients actually currently in care with us right now. So to be able to say that, okay, well, we've released a good number of species. What are we seeing actively right now? We still have our Tennessee warbler that's just being released. Um, so that's a pretty neat species. Uh, a little tougher to tell the species on that one um, because fall is the time for confusing fall warblers where they're in a different plumage um, as they migrate towards migration. They're very dull and sometimes difficult to identify but that and Nashville warbler as well. So really cool. I would definitely encourage you to maybe look up what they look like on the Alabama Birds website through Cornell uh, or Birds of North America. Um, it's really beautiful if you study the different varieties of warbler species and, and how different they look. Sometimes it's just really minor differences to tell them apart. And then uh, right now we have a number of cedar waxwings in care, a lot of American goldfinches, some of our other favorite species for sure, cardinals, um, and then uh, red-tailed hawks. That's probably our most common species of raptor that we'll have in care. Uh, and then so many turtles, lots of eggs right now, still waiting for baby Blanding's turtles to hatch. Um, I cannot believe that we have baby Blanding turtle eggs, but those are going to be really exciting if they do hatch. Uh, we've never had baby Blanding's turtles hatch in care before, but we have done a really good job this year of hatching out most of our turtle eggs. So I know I've done segments about those before, but maybe one of these times you'll get to see pictures on our Facebook page about tiny baby Blanding's. They're um, not 
threatened or endangered. They used to be threatened in the state, but they're still of um, great concern here. Uh, so being able to bring a few more into the world will be a success story for our program. Uh, so yeah, lots of turtles, uh, many songbirds right now, a couple of raptors. Uh, so we're pretty full with 95 patients right now. And uh, it's always great to hear from you if you have any sick, injured, or wildlife in your area. Um, we're just getting to the, the point of the year where we're gonna return to admitting mammals into our care probably here in the next month. Usually the winter time is our period of getting adult gray squirrels and cottontail rabbits and a lot of opossums. And then sometimes shrews. A lot of people find shrews in their basement as we're getting to fall and into winter. So be on the lookout for species that are in need of help. Also look for sick and injured animals on the roadsides or especially in the migratory period below any windows. Definitely encourage folks to put UV stickers on their windows or try to find frittered patterns that they can put up so that we reduce that impact of collision for animals, um, especially in our region. So other than that, uh, we hope you enjoyed our, our recap of what we have in care and what's been released here at Dane County Humane Society. But if you have any questions or you find an animal you think needs help, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Dan Ribarchek watches the birth of a new star in a distant corner of our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Daniel Barczyk. Today, we're talking about a star forming in the outermost reaches of the Milky Way galaxy. Astronomers announced the discovery of an actively forming star located 19 kiloparsecs. That's over 350,000 trillion miles from the center of our galaxy. Astronomers use kiloparsecs to describe the gigantic distances between objects in our galaxy. One kiloparsec is about 20,000 trillion miles. The sun is about 8 kiloparsecs from the galactic center, and the entire Milky Way galaxy is about 30 to 40 kiloparsecs all the way across. So something 19 kiloparsecs from the center is extremely far out. Astronomers even call this part of the Milky Way the extreme outer galaxy. The extreme outer galaxy isn't just far away from most of the material that makes up our galaxy. It also has a very different composition. The reason for this is that stars form heavy elements from lighter elements in their cores. For example, at the extreme temperatures in the center of stars, hydrogen atoms are smashed together, fusing together to form helium. In this way, lighter elements like hydrogen form heavier elements. Not just helium, but also carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, neon, silicon, and more. And when stars die, they eject these heavier elements out into space, enriching the surrounding area. But in the extreme outer galaxy, stars are much rarer than in the inner galaxy or even the solar neighborhood. So the gas hasn't been enriched with these heavier elements. This is actually one of the things that attracts astronomers to studying the extreme outer galaxy. The gas is so unenriched that it resembles gas in the early universe, before many generations of stars lived, died, and expelled these elements into their galaxies. By looking out into the most distant reaches of our own galaxy, we can learn more about how the first stars formed billions of years ago. But, like I said, 
stars in the outer galaxy are extremely rare, which makes star formation in these conditions still extremely hard to study. That's why it's so exciting that astronomers found a new protostar in the extreme outer galaxy. A protostar, as the name suggests, is the precursor to a star. They are dense, warm structures that will continue to condense and heat up in their centers until they become full-fledged stars. Astronomers use the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, a suite of telescopes in the Atacama Desert, to detect the so-called hot molecular core surrounding the protostar, where a variety of different molecules are present in the warm, densely packed gas that precedes star formation. In fact, the team identified almost 40 different kinds of molecules in this region. This is impressive and testifies to robust chemistry, even in an environment like the extreme outer galaxy. However, the total quantity of gas in these different molecules was much lower than we typically see at the galactic center. And since there is a smaller quantity of heavy elements like carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, which make up many common molecules, this isn't really surprising. Interestingly, though, the abundances of different molecules was remarkably different than what has been seen in the Large Magellanic Cloud, a nearby galaxy thought to be similar in composition to the extreme outer galaxy. And the reason for this discrepancy isn't fully understood, but it's thought to indicate that this hot molecular core is at a different evolutionary stage than the molecular cores seen in the Large Magellanic Cloud. But the astronomers will continue to search for hot cores in the extreme outer galaxy to better understand the chemical makeup of these cores, and thereby learn more about the formation of stars in the universe billions of years ago. That's all for radio astronomy this week. Keep looking up, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Carolina Bursian and Nate Buggy Hot. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Maestro Patio. And we're going to check in with Charlie one last time before we go. Good night, and please keep those pledges coming. And thank you. We do have Robert W. to thank from Madison. Robert pledged for a WORT long sleeve t-shirt. Thank you so much, Robert. Robert is a volunteer. Uh, Robert likes the WORT local news, Perpetual Notion Machine, and Democracy Now!, a fine variety of programming here at WORT. We do need your help to make our goal, our $250 goal for this hour, Pledge online at wortfm.org. You can use PayPal to donate, and you can also call 608-256-2001. Talk to our pledge answer, who is Susan, and uh, she will guide you through the process of donating. You've heard a lot of voices during this one hour of news programming that we bring to you Monday through Thursday. You hear a variety of voices here on WORT, and uh, you've also heard a variety of voices over the past two weeks asking for your support to WORT and we're asking you to add your voice to our community of supporters and and support WORT. We're here literally because you support us. Uh, you listen, you give. I do want to thank... 
Matthew, I don't know how much of his name I can say, Matthew, for donating (laughs) during our pledge drive. Thank you so much, Matthew, for calling in and showing your support. Help be the next call. We know they come in at the last minute. Make our goal of $250, 608-256-2001, or pledge online at wortfm.org. Thank you so much for your support. Help me ring this bell. (laughs) 